0: All right, y'all ready to start? Good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Paul who wrote this book that we call Colossians. Lord, we pray that as we begin to study it this morning that you would work through it. And we know that you will work through it because it's your word. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would be here with us and that you send your spirit to convict us of our sin and to draw us toward yourself and to the truth of your gospel. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. All right, turn with me if you will to the book of Colossians because that is what we are continuing to study this morning. Just by way of review from uh, last week, we started our series in Colossians with um, basically an introduction. And um, I thought it would be good to do... Actually, I didn't really plan to do an introduction last week when I was preparing the session. Actually, last week and this week were supposed to be one session. But then when I... uh, wrote the outline and then started going through it at home, I was like, you know what, this needs to be two sessions because the introduction is too long. So and the introduction ended up being its own uh, thing. But in our introduction, we talked about, uh, this was last week, we talked about um, the author, namely Paul, of course, writing Colossians. We talked about the church in Colossae and a little bit about the city, about the history of the, the city, about the church there, how it got planted by a guy named Epaphras who heard the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, and who had come over to Colossae and shared the gospel with people and ended up planting a congregation of believers. And that is the the congregation to which Paul is writing here in Colossians. And uh, then we also talked a little bit last week about the kinds of things that um, Colossians was written for. It was written to combat various heresies relating to salvation. Particularly, uh, people were trying to add human works onto the work of God and the work of Christ in salvation. They said, God's work isn't enough. We need to add human works, and then we'll get salvation. So Paul's combating that heresy, and there were some other um, spiritual-related heresies that Paul was dealing with. And then, finally last week, we dealt with basically an outline to the book of Colossians, and I want to put that outline up on the board again this morning to sort of remind you of it because... As I said last week, it is very, very important that as we begin today to work with the text of Colossians and look verse by verse at it and work our way through all of its four chapters, it's going to be very important to keep in mind the big picture of what's going on in this epistle, because we don't want to get lost in the details. There's going to be all kinds of things that I'm going to be pointing out as we go along in the text, both today and in future weeks. And it can sometimes feel like we're going this way and then going that way, because that's sometimes the nature of the epistles. But when we're doing that, we always want to keep in mind an outline. And that's the outline that I want to review for you here really quickly before we get started this morning. So as I've read through Colossians, and read through these four chapters and studied them and prepared this series, I think that Colossians can be divided into three primary pieces if you have three primary parts. Now, if you read Colossians and you outline it, you might come up with, you know, four sections or five sections or something, and that's fine. But these are the three sections that I've identified and I think they're helpful in understanding where Paul is going in this epistle, what his point is and those kinds of things. So, the first section of the book of Colossians, which we're going to study this morning, is essentially Paul's introduction and his thesis. Okay, and that is chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, which is what we're going to look at this morning. So the first section is Paul's intro and thesis. And by this, I'm not, I don't mean thesis in the technical, academic sense, where you say, you know, the purpose of this paper is to show X, Y, and Z. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is Paul's reason for writing the letter and why he's concerned about the Colossians and what the rest of the content of the epistle is going to be about. That's what I mean by thesis. So Paul's intro and thesis is this first section. And his thesis, if I can just um, summarize it for you here that we're going to see today, his thesis is essentially um, that a pursuit of the genuine knowledge and wisdom of God through faith in Christ will result in fruit. Okay, let me read that again. A pursuit of the genuine knowledge and wisdom of God through faith in Christ will result in fruit. And we're going to see why I think that's his thesis when we get into these first 11 verses here this morning. But then the second section of his epistle is the knowledge of Christ. And that's going to be chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 23. Just about ran out of room on the board there. Uh, And then the third section is Christian living. which is chapters 3 and 4. Okay, so here's why I think this is his structure here. You remember his thesis, as I just read, is that the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of what the Word of God teaches about Christ, the knowledge of the gospel, fill in the blank with whatever kind of knowledge we're talking about, knowledge of Christ embraced by faith is going to produce people who live like Christians. It's going to produce fruit. Huh? And so what you can see is after he does this intro and in his thesis, then he does—he shows that what knowledge of Christ we need to have. He goes through Christology, the doctrine of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what is reconciliation, what is redemption, how are we saved, all these things about Jesus. He goes through that, and then he says, all right, now this is how you need to live as a Christian who believes in the knowledge of Christ. Okay, so you can see his thesis sort of outworking here. He states it, and then he gives you what you need to believe about Jesus, and then he says, here's what you do now that you believe uh, these things about Jesus. Here's how you live. And this Christian living section is both theological, as he deals with the theology of the old self and the new self, and then it's also very practical because he points out very specific things that Christian people need to do as they live on this earth for Jesus, and then also in this section, as we'll see when we get to it, he's going to give amazing examples of real people who are living as Christians and who are believing in Jesus and um, are bearing fruit. Specific examples of real people, and he names them. And I think he does that because sometimes, sometimes Christian living can be so, um, so general. And so, cold, you need to do this, you need to do this. And it, and it lacks the warmth of showing real people examples who are actually doing the things that we're talking about. Okay, So that's why I think that Paul does that in his Christian Living sections. He gives real people examples. And we'll see more of that when we get there. But this is essentially the three-point outline that I have for you of Colossians. And always keep this in the forefront of your mind as we're studying it so we don't get lost in all of the, the rabbit trails or the... Um, the details that we're going to be looking at. All right. Okay. With that review slash extra introduction, let's now actually take a look at the book of Colossians here. So our text for this morning. Oops, let's not lose my notes. Our text for this morning is Colossians chapter one verses one through eleven. So we're covering the whole of the first section of our outline. Now, just FYI, we're not going to be doing that every week. Okay, we're not, we, There may be weeks when we cover a single verse in Colossians, where we just take one verse. We may not cover an entire chapter at once or an entire section at once, but this morning, that's what we're going to do. So, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I will read it for us here, and then we will get started looking at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? It's a lot of stuff that Paul wants to get across there. And so what I'd like to do is sort of walk through this with you this morning. Take a look. Right from the beginning, let's go through and figure out what Paul is trying to say and what that means for us. So firstly, let's uh, go up to verse 1. In verse 1, as we begin to actually look at the text of Colossians this morning, which is what all this introduction has been leading to, we see Paul introduce himself as the author. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, as 21st century American Christians who are very accustomed to reading the Apostle Paul and who know a lot about him, as I'm sure all of you guys know, Paul's story on the Damascus Road, he's converted to Jesus and then he's, you know, becomes one of the most foremost Christians in all of history and writes, you know, a huge chunk of the New Testament. Um, For most of us, when we read an introduction like this, when Paul introduces himself, we can sometimes read it too quickly, and we fail to recognize its significance. Because here's the thing. Remember, the Colossians, the people that Paul is writing to here, have never actually met Paul. You remember that from last week? Paul never visited Colossae. Paul visited Ephesus, which is in the region of Colossae, and Someone named Epaphras heard the gospel at Ephesus and brought it to Colossae and planted the church. And through his preaching of the apostolic word, God's word, uh, many people came to know Jesus and a church was planted. But these people that Paul is writing to have never actually met Paul. They may know a few things about him from Epaphras or from other Christians, but they've never actually met him. And so Paul, as he writes this letter, he writes from the get-go at the beginning, Introduces himself by stating his name and by stating his office. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And that's significant. And it's significant because to bear the title of apostle is no small thing. Apostle does not mean simply a Christian. Apostle does not simply mean someone who's a messenger. An apostle, by by the testimony of the early church even, in the earliest writings that we have, an apostle was a special, specific office. The apostle was someone who was sent by Jesus Christ to teach with his own authority. And what that means is that when the apostles, particularly when they were writing letters and when they were writing scripture... They were writing the very words of God. They had that authority because the Spirit was inspiring what they were writing. And they knew that. Peter calls Paul's writing Scripture, puts them on the same level with the prophets of the Old Testament. So when Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's not just saying, hey, I'm a fellow Christian. He's saying, no, I have apostolic authority. What I am teaching is the very words of God. You need to listen up. You see that? This is a big introduction. He's saying, listen to my words. I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Jesus sent me out to teach with his own authority by God's will. This is no small thing. And then also Paul lists, uh, he says, um, Timothy, our brother, as sort of a second, sort of a co-author in a certain sense. And notice here when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, comma, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy doesn't have that apostolic title. Timothy is recognized as simply being our brother, meaning a fellow Christian, a fellow brother in Christ. Maybe the uh, Colossians knew Timothy or something. I don't know why Paul includes him here. But um, the letter is from Paul primarily, and Timothy is a kind of co-author, sort of. And then he writes to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace you and peace from God, our Father. You remember from last week, if you don't remember it, I'll repeat it for you. From last week, we talked about how Paul was writing this epistle um, for a number of reasons, but one of them was to combat heresy, heresy relating to salvation, heresy relating to hyper-spiritualized views of reality, all those sorts of things. And when Paul writes this, notice how he addresses the Colossians. He doesn't address them by saying, hey, to all the heretics uh, in the church in Colossae. Right? He doesn't write to the heretics. He doesn't, he doesn't call them out on any heresy. He just says to the brothers, the faithful brothers. So these people are true believers. They are true Christians. They really have converted to Jesus Christ. They are brothers, and God is their father, meaning they are Christians. So the heresy hasn't taken its full root yet. The heresy is just sort of something on the outlies of, of the congregation. And it's threatening them, but it hasn't overtaken them. So these people are true believers that he's writing to. That'll be important uh, a little bit later. Oh, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. And so that, which you could say, those first two verses there, if you allow me to sort of continue my outline, is the intro. That's his introduction. Who's writing it? Who's he writing to? This is Paul, an apostle, the teachings Of Jesus are coming from his mouth. He bears apostolic authority. And then, secondly, he writes to believers in Colossae. Not nominal Christians, not heretics. These are real Christians. All right, and then in verse 3, he starts to get into um, a little bit, starts to move into his thesis, moves a little bit more into. Um, his point for the epistle. So verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Again, these are real believers. And notice something, notice something. In verse four, he says, we've heard of the faith of your faith in Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. So these people here have both the faith and the works. See, they have both the faith and the fruit that faith produces, right? Um, in, the, in the medieval times, in mean, medieval theology, which has a lot of you know, positives and negatives. I don't know how much uh, pastor went into this in your church history series last year. But in medieval theology, there was a common phrase, and it went something like this, faith produces love, or fides produces caritas, faith produces love, and that's scriptural, because people who believe in Jesus Christ and have truly been changed by the gospel are going to manifest that fruit among each other particularly, and then among everybody more generally, And that's what Paul's describing here. The faith in Christ is the cause that produces the effect of the love that they have for all the saints. So these people are manifesting the fruit. And Paul's heard about this. He's never been to Colossae. Someone's told him about this. Maybe they wrote him a letter or something and he's responding to it here. Who knows? But he's heard about their faith and he's heard about the fruit that it's bearing. And uh, then second half of verse 5 of this, You have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. There's a couple of things here that I think are are fairly significant. When When Paul says that they heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Remember, they heard and understood the grace of God in truth by means of someone who is not an apostle. From Epaphras, namely. Now we might think, okay, you know, big deal. Move on, keep reading. No, this is a big deal. This is a big deal when it comes to the debates in theology today about apostles. Because there are some Christians who believe that if we don't have apostles today, then there really is no word of truth. Because we have to have apostles today in order to validate the fact that the Bible is still God's word. On the more traditional side, this manifests itself in Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, you have to have an apostle at all times to validate the scriptures and to claim it as authoritative. Anyone want to take a guess at who that apostle is? Yeah, that's right. That's the Pope. Because the Pope is an apostle who succeeded after Peter, the Apostle Peter. And he bears his authority from Peter throughout the ages. And that apostolic authority is passed down from Pope to Pope to Pope throughout all of history. And if you want, you can go online. I think Wikipedia has a list of all the Popes from Peter until now. They've got this nice long list. Um, So that's the more traditional side that the Pope has to validate the authority of Scripture. That is part of Roman Catholic theology. The Scripture is not self-authenticating. It has to be authenticated by an apostle, namely the Pope. But then on the more radical, you know, if you want to say crazy side, you've got the hyper-Pentecostalists who have apostles at every church that they have today. So if you walk into some of these churches, not all Pentecostals do this. You know, There are some um, more orthodox ones. But some hyper-Pentecostals, you go to their church, and you don't get greeted by Pastor Tom. You get greeted by the Apostle Tom, who's apostle for that church. Because they need apostolic authority to validate the scriptures. Now, you say, okay, well, what does this have to do with what Paul's talking about? Well, listen to what he says. He says that... They heard the grace of God in truth when it was brought to them by Epaphras, who is not an apostle. That is, that church in Colossae was planted, and all those people were converted to Jesus because someone who was not an apostle took apostolic teachings, brought it to the Colossians, explained it to them, and preached it to them, and they were saved, and the church was planted without an apostle there. That's important because you know what? The, the the place that the Colossians are in spiritually is the exact same place that American churches like Pearl Prez are today. Because we don't have an apostle here. All right? I'm not an apostle. Surprise. I'm not an apostle. Neither is Pastor Adam. PCA doesn't have any apostles in it. America doesn't have any apostles in it. But we're in the same place as the Colossians because we... This church and all other Christian churches are planted and sustained by apostolic teaching, but by people who are not apostles who bring the apostolic teaching to you. And by the way, by apostolic teaching, I'm talking about the Bible, because right? that's what this is, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And so as we, as we think about you know, this church or other churches, we don't need apostles today. Because the, the testimony of the apostles, the word of God, is self-authenticating, and it is enough to change people. And it is enough to create churches by means of the work of the Spirit through the word to convert people to Christ. Okay, So if anyone ever um, wants to tell you that, well, you know, you can't have a church unless you have an apostle there, which I've had people say this to me, so this is legit out there. Bring them to this text and say, hey, the Colossian church didn't need that. Someone brought them the apostolic teaching, just like we do today, every time we bring the scriptures to people. Okay, Sorry, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I thought that was significant because that's a huge debate going on in theology today right now. Okay, so um, the the word of God has come to them. And then also um, notice something else he says in verse 6. Um, when he says, this is the second half of verse 6, as it also does among you, that is the Colossians, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That there's a heavy emphasis, and we'll see this in another couple of verses, there's a heavy emphasis here on hearing and understanding. Meaning there's a heavy emphasis on preaching or teaching and the listener's thinking carefully about what's being said, just like I know all of you are doing right now, <laughs> right? So hold that thought. Verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now there is a load of stuff to talk about in these couple of verses. Let's try to break it down quickly here. First verse nine. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So here's Paul and Timothy and whoever else is in their group. And Paul's saying, listen, guys, Since we've heard about the work that Epaphras has done planting this church in Colossae and how you have all uh, embraced Christ and had faith in him and been manifesting the fruit of love and all these sorts of things, as we've heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And we've not ceased to pray for you particularly in two things. So Paul's praying for two things for them primarily. First thing he says he's praying them for is that they may be filled with, with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. see that. First thing. That they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does that mean? Well I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Reason. The thing that he, is, that he means here. Alright. The thing that he means. Is he's, he's talking about God's will here. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now. It's important to recognize that the Bible, when it speaks about, about God's will, usually has a specific kind of God's will in mind. In other words, when the Bible talks about God's will, it doesn't always mean the same thing. And this is where theologians can be actually really helpful, where they're not splitting hairs, but they actually make legitimately important distinctions. When, when we talk about God's will, Um, theologians have distinguished between a number of different ways that the Bible talks about God's will. And this is really important, because if we don't get this right, we can radically misunderstand a lot of the Bible. So the first way that the the Bible talks about God's will sometimes, or what it means when it says God's will, is it's talking about God's omnipotent will. Okay, Talking about God's omnipotent will. So, for example, if the Bible were to say something like, it was God's will that the earth be created. Well, what it's saying is, it was God's omnipotent will that the earth be created. Because the earth couldn't refuse to be created. It had to happen. It was necessary for it to happen. The earth came into being by the very omnipotent power of God. It just happened, and nothing could have happened outside of it. That's God's omnipotent will. It has to happen. Let there be light. Well, the light couldn't refuse to come into being. It had to come into being. Right? That's his omnipotent will. But there are um, some other ways that the Bible talks about God's will. For example, it can talk about his prescriptive will. And this is the will in which God prescribes something. No, not medicine or you know anything like that, but where he prescribes a rule or a law. In the prescriptive will, a good example of it would be uh, the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments, God is prescribing to his people, saying, listen, you are going to follow this. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not do X, Y, and Z, right? That's his prescriptive will. He's saying, you are not allowed to do this. But the difference between these two wills is that in the omnipotent will, it cannot not happen. And for the prescriptive will, People break God's prescriptive will all the time, right? We break it all the time. You know, we sin constantly. We constantly break God's law. And so the prescriptive will is violated. Because can we say it's God's will for us to follow the Ten Commandments? Of course we can. But that doesn't mean it's his omnipotent will, because it doesn't always happen. We break it all the time, okay? That's why it's important to make these distinctions, because we can say something is God's will in different ways, uh, that's the second way. The third way, and you'll see where I'm going with all of this. The third way um, the Bible talks about His will is it's His will of disposition. His will of disposition. That sounds very theological and technical, but all it means is it's it has this idea of God has a desire to do something. He has he has a desire in His will to do something, but he has another desire that's greater. So just to give you an example of this, think about this. Um, if I am if I am waking up early in the morning, which is which does happen, all right? I get up at five in the morning every morning except Saturday. And when I get up at five in the morning, the first thing that I do is I go right to the weight room at RTS because I like to lift weights, and the only time I have in the day to do that is early in the morning because I'm busy with classes and homework and all that stuff. Now, when I wake up and I hear that obnoxious alarm on my phone at five in the morning and i'm in my bed with covers on and it's warm and i don't want to get up i have two desires and i'm sure you know what i'm talking about i got two desires i have one desire that wants to stay in bed hit the snooze button hit the stop button stay in bed i'm not getting up i feel lazy or i I don't the last thing i want to do is go burn for two hours in the weight room that just sounds terrible so i'm not going to do that that's one desire I have another another desire to fulfill a goal that I have of, you know, getting my bench press up or something, whatever, whatever goal. So I've got these two desires, two dispositions, and I choose according to the greatest disposition at the time, which for me, you know, 99% of the time is to get up and do it, all right? So I've got two dispositions. One is greater, one is lesser. The greater one is the one that I always choose at the moment of the decision, that's what we're talking about, what theologians are talking about when they talk about God's will of disposition. That God has a desire for something, but he has a greater desire for something else. But the Bible sometimes speaks about God's lesser desire as his will. So, for example, for God, let's say um, in, in Genesis, when God is looking at the world after Adam and Eve and after Cain and Abel and so on, and it says, you know, that humankind is so crazy sinful. And it says, God was sorry that he made man over the earth and was grieved in his heart. Now, that's a really difficult text to work with if you don't know how to distinguish between the ways that it talks about what God wants. Or when the Bible talks about God's will. Because for some, they look at that and they say, oh, see, God's not sovereign. God couldn't control that. Well, he regretted he made the earth. He was sorry. He would have done something different had he known what was going to happen. I guess he didn't know the future. Well, no, that's a failure to distinguish between God's omnipotent will and his will of disposition. The Bible's describing a legitimate regret that God had, a legitimate desire that he wished it could have been different in a certain sense. But in a greater sense, the world is progressing exactly the way he ordained whatsoever comes to pass. That's his greater desire because he's going to get the greatest glory from that. Okay? So that's God's will of disposition. And then the fourth and final one, which I'll bring up because there's more, theologians like to make distinctions Uh, the fourth and final one is God's revealed will God's revealed will and in God's revealed will it simply means anything that God has revealed to us so specifically God's revealed will is the scriptures because if God revealed the scriptures to us obviously he wants us or he wills us to know what's in the Bible so that's his revealed will all right, so now what do we do with all these distinctions? What in the world does this have to do with Colossians? Well, here's what it has to do. When, when Paul says that he's praying for the Colossians, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, I think between these, I think we'd have to say it's probably his revealed will, and maybe indirectly the prescriptive will, because anything that God prescribes is contained within his word, and his revealed will. So what is Paul saying? He's saying... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Colossians, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's revealed will, namely, the scriptures. Be filled with the knowledge of God contained in special revelation, in what God has revealed to us and what he wills us to know. Be filled with that knowledge. Be filled with that knowledge which leads to spiritual wisdom and understanding. Where do we get spiritual wisdom and understanding? From God's word. Right? Not from philosophy, as much as I love philosophy. Right? Not from logic, as much as I love logic. We get spiritual wisdom and understanding from the scriptures. And notice Paul's emphasis on understanding in this passage so far. Have you seen this? I, I circled all of the understood, knowledge, wisdom, understanding words that are showing up in this passage. It's crazy. Paul is placing a profound emphasis on the human intellect, on the Christian intellect. That the Christian faith is not a time for us to shut off our brains. I had a, um, a teacher in... Oh, when was this? It was youth group. Um, a youth group Sunday school class, you know, long ago when I was in youth group. And uh, this teacher... One morning he said, hey, listen, guys. He said, don't get involved in all this theology stuff. He said, don't get involved in all this deep study of, of doctrine and stuff. We Christians, we don't need doctrine. We don't really need our, our minds either. I'm not kidding. That's what he said. We just need to love Jesus. We need to be simple Christians. We need to be childlike in our faith. Now, on the one hand... He's got a point. We need to be childlike in our faith. Right? Jesus teaches this in the Gospels. But on the other hand, he's absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Because the scripture teaches that we're not just to be childlike in our faith, right? But it teaches that we are to grow and mature in our faith. We are to be childlike, but we're not to be childish in our understanding. The scripture is constantly calling us, to a greater knowledge of God. of Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. In other words, the author of Hebrews is thoroughly frustrated with his recipients because they ought to be maturing they ought to be pursuing maturity in their knowledge of God and their understanding of the Scriptures and their understanding of God and Christ and the Spirit and so on. They need to understand these things. They need to grow in their understanding. And some of them, he says, have been in the church for so long and have been hearing all of this teaching for so long that they're expected to become teachers or they're expected to to teach in some level. But they're not. They're not ready. Because they haven't been diligent in disciplining their intellect and devoting it to God. And so now they need milk and not solid food when they should be eating spiritual beef. And they could barely suckle on the spiritual milk. He's chastising them. And Paul here, in a positive sense, doesn't chastise these people, but he's encouraging them to pursue this kind of understanding of the Christian faith. We need to be people who use our minds as Christians. We are not to shut off our brains when we come to church. We are here to learn. We are here to understand what the Word teaches and to incorporate it into our lives, right? We don't shut off our brains. And Paul, I think, is emphasizing that so much when he says, I'm only praying for two things for you guys, that you'd be filled with the knowledge of scriptures. And secondly now, which we'll come to in verse 10, he's praying for fruit. He prays that they'd be filled with the knowledge, and then verse 10, you'd be filled with knowledge... So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now there's a danger sometimes if we place so much emphasis on the Christian mind and knowledge and understanding of, of theology or of scripture or whatever, that we then become Christians in an ivory tower where we're so concerned with understanding doctrine that we forget about the Christian life. And Paul here is giving us a marvelous balance between the two. When he prays that the Colossians would not simply be filled with Christian knowledge, but they'd be filled with Christian fruit and that they would bear this fruit for the world to see. And that they would walk, meaning that they would live their life in a manner worthy of God fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge. See, I, I've, I had professors in my undergrad. I, I love my professors. I, mean, I love them. I love them so much. But I had one professor. He was so involved in the study of theology that people didn't even know he was a Christian if they weren't part of the school. At all. Wasn't involved in his church. Wasn't doing anything for the body of Christ. He was just in his office all the time studying theology. <laughs> That is not what Paul's calling us to do here. We're not to be just Christians in an ivory tower. That's a temptation for some of us. Some of you are like, I don't, you know, I have to work hard to study doctrine. I have to work hard to study theology. I have to work hard to remember what's in the Bible. I'm just not an intellectual person. I'm more of a practical person. And that's good. That's a gift. But people like me, for example, I struggle with more the practical side because I like the doctrinal side. I like the mind. I like to discipline my intellect and understand and memorize and and learn Hebrew, Greek, and Latin and do all of these scholarly sorts of things. We all have our different temptations to one side or the other. And what we ought to see here is that Paul has a marvelous balance between the two. He prays for the Colossians, that they would discipline their minds and their lives, that this knowledge wouldn't be something that would produce spiritual scholasticism where we just don't care about the world or about living for christ but rather that this this knowledge would be a kind that produces wisdom which we then apply to our lives so as to walk in a manner worthy of the lord that's huge that's huge I mean, and, uh, yes don't you think the spirit the holy spirit makes a difference yes in that guy you're talking uh, in which guy the one you said like the, theology. Uh, the, professor? the professor as in that he will help him to apply it to his life at some point or like yeah right well I mean that's that's our job as Christians is to pray that the spirit would convict us of ways that we fall short of either one of these issues right because we can like you know be too stuck on one thing rather than on the other or on the other thing rather than this one and we need the spirit to help us balance those things right. Yeah, is that that what you were talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. We'll get to the application here in just a second. And then finally, verse 11. Here's a wrap-up the text this morning. Here's the result or, of the things that are going to happen as a, as a result of the knowledge producing the fruit. Verse 11. Bearing, uh, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So there's endurance in the Christian faith. In other words, perseverance in the Christian faith. The ability not to to, um, become apostate or those sorts of things. Patience, which I needed when I was getting stopped by every red light on the way here this morning. And joy. Joy. That's a huge part of the Christian life. A huge part of studying scripture. A huge part of worship is joy spiritual joy, or that we are happy and joyful to learn new things about God, happy and joyful to apply those new things that we learned about God to our lives. So those are the, the um, results. And then uh, verse 12, if we kept going, which we'll do verse 12 and following next week, Paul sort of makes a seamless transition here between his thesis and um, the knowledge of Christ as he moves into what exactly this knowledge is that we're supposed to fill ourselves with or that the Colossians are. Okay, so now, finally, whew, after that, we're all into verses and all kinds of things to talk about there. What does this mean for us? Uh, how on earth do we apply these things to our lives? What, what's some highlights of application? Um, well, Christian people, when they are filled with the knowledge of God, that is spiritual wisdom and understanding... They will be driven toward good works, bearing fruit and increasing in their knowledge of God. All these bringing about Christian endurance, patience, and joy. That's kind of the summary of these verses. Now here's the question. Don't take this the wrong way, but I'm just asking, are we, I'm including myself in this, are we bearing the fruit that we ought? Are we bearing the fruit that we ought? And by the way, if I said, raise your hand if you're not bearing the fruit that you ought, we all ought to raise our hand, right? Because we're not bearing the fruit that we ought. We are far from it. We have an infinite chasm between the fruit that we ought to bear and the fruit that we do bear, if I we bear any more, <laughs> That's right. There's a lot of spiritual fruit. <laughs> That's right. Maybe we'll cover that book again in another day. Um, yeah, we're so far from it, right? So far from it. And you know what? The, the wrong, there, people ask this question a lot, right? Ministers, pastors, teachers, Christians to each other. They ask this question a lot. Are you doing what God requires enough? Are you sufficiently following God's law? Are you sufficiently bearing the fruit of a Christian? And for so many churches, the solution, if someone says no, is, well, just, you got to try harder. You got to try harder. Is that the right answer? We just got to try harder to bear more fruit? I don't think so. I don't think that's a biblical answer. If you think, as I'm, as I'm telling you right now, as I'm telling myself right now, if we think that the answer to the problem, I'm not bearing enough fruit, is that I need to work harder, that's the wrong answer. The right answer is to turn to Jesus, to repent where we have fallen short and to ask Him for His grace to then make us obey. And by make, I don't mean in a a mean way, but where the Spirit transforms our hearts so that we want to obey and so that we want to bear more fruit and that He works through us so that that fruit would grow plentiful. The wrong answer is to think that we need to do something. The wrong answer is to think, oh, I just need to try harder to bear more fruit. No, that is absolutely wrong. The way that we... more fruit is to turn to Jesus and to see the gospel, to see where he took all of that rotten fruit that we bore, all of the absence of fruit that we bore, that huge chasm between what God requires and what we've actually done. And he paid the penalty we deserve for that. Turn to the gospel. That is what transforms. And as Jesus then comes to us and his spirit comes to us, that is what's going to produce the fruit. It's not us. We need to look to Jesus. And that's ultimately, surprise, where Paul is exactly going to go and exactly what he's going to say as he goes through here. Because the very next thing he treats is the gospel of Christ. And we'll talk about that next week. All right. We're out of time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... uh, We often see in your word how we fall short of what you require of us. Lord, we ought to be perfect witnesses for you in this world. People ought to see us as believers and say, wow, that's Jesus. That's what he's like. I want that. And Lord, that happens sometimes by your grace. But other times, and indeed probably most of the time for us, we don't manifest you as we ought. And then we pray as we seek to bear spiritual fruit, that we wouldn't rely on our own ability to muster up obedience, but, rather that we would rely on your gospel and that your gospel would be the thing that changes us and fills us with endurance and patience and joy unto good works and fruit. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish that in us as we continue to study Colossians and as we continue to come to church and to hear your word preached uh, this morning and as we worship you. So, Lord, I pray that you'd accomplish what you want to do and that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say in your word as we continue to study and be filled with that knowledge of your revealed will week in and week out as we continue to grow as your people. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.